One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the Kellogg brothers' 10-year legal battle against one another. You'll never look at cornflakes the same way again. And I'll be talking about the West Memphis Three, the teenagers who were tried and convicted of the 1993 slayings of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. Brandy. Yes, Kristen? Last week, Norman uh, had some complaints about our sponsored portion of the episode. Uh, he seemed to think it was unstructured and that we didn't know what we were talking about. Well, I never. I'm putting it all on you, so please step it up a notch. <laughs> <laughs> this episode brought to you by The Gaming Historian, Volume 1, Blu-ray, available at GamingHistorian.com for the low, low price of $20. Bam. Nailed it. Nailed it. Take that, Norm. Okay. So you know nothing about this? I don't. This is I'm excited. Be- we'll start with a little bit about both of them. John Harvey Kellogg was born in 1852. He was this extremely famous doctor, borderline celebrity in his day. Mm-hmm. And he became famous for doing all kinds of cutting edge things. He had these wacky ideas like, hey, maybe instead of showering once a week, we should uh, up that up a bit. <laughs> He, he had a lot of really great ideas that even today make perfect sense and we still practice. He was kind of practicing medicine at a time when people were like, well, you go to the doctor once you've got a disease and then you try to fix it. But he was more on to preventative medicine. Like, hey, how about if we mm-hmm. try to live well now so that in the future we don't catch these horrible diseases? Some things that he, was, he advocated for, exercise, eating healthy food, not smoking, which back then was huge. huge. Yeah. yeah, cinnamon in the coffee. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Today, Brandy made fun of me for putting cinnamon in my coffee. First of all, you were like, "What did you just put in your coffee?" <laughs> I just never seen someone do it before. I'm telling you, lots of people do it. Lots of perfectly normal people. <laughs> getting very defensive about your cinnamon habits. Listen, it doesn't mean I'm a serial killer. So quit talking about it. Uh, he, like me, was very normal. <laughs> he, again, was super into having a proper diet. He was mm-hmm. into vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into this a little more because it gets kind of funny. No alcohol, no smoking, vegetarian diet. Super high fiber, low protein. Mm -hmm. And he was a Seventh-day Adventist. Mm. So that kind of informed some of his thoughts. As religion will. (laughs) (laughs) So he was really well known for being the chief medical officer of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And that was run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it was basically like a hospital and a high-end hotel all in one. And tons of people came to this place. Mm-hmm. Amelia Earhart, Sojourner Truth, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, William Howard Taft. Like, this was the place to go to get healthy. Some more stuff about John Harvey Kellogg. He was constantly learning, constantly coming up with new theories on, mm-hmm. on how to live better, eat better. He was big on probiotics. He was big on drinking lots of water. He was big on your gut health. Yeah. Anti-sitting for too long. Great mm-hmm. stuff. Some not-so-great stuff. (laughs) Here we go. This dude was obsessed with masturbating. What? 
is that took a turn for me. That is not where I was expecting this to go. And I realized as soon as I said it, I don't mean like he couldn't stop masturbating. I mean like he was a chronic masturbator. <laughs> no, so he was obsessed in the sense that he thought masturbating was like one of the worst things you could do. He called it self-abuse. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is the opposite of what I thought you meant when he said he was obsessed with masturbating. Well, that's on you. <laughs> I mean, he had some real strict views about sex and mm-hmm. masturbation and sexuality in general. So first of all, he was like, okay, sex can only happen in a marriage, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. Well, but I'm, I'm not saying it to the next <laughs> okay. level. So like, that's, okay. that's, like, that's baseline, like baseline, yeah, you know, yeah. normal religious belief type yeah, of thing. Sure, yes, sure. Okay. But on me. top of that, he only believed that sex should happen in a marriage and only for procreation. Not just because you want to have some fun. So, you know, his belief, you do not masturbate ever. And you only have sex with your spouse to procreate. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know how to have a good time. Yeah, really. He sounds great. Some ways he advocated to help people stop masturbating. Pouring acid on women's clitorises and circumcising boys and men without anesthesia. Holy shit. I want to say, just to be honest, <laughs> that this stuff really doesn't pertain to the lawsuit. I you just, just really wanted to put this in there. <laughs> you got so excited talking about the genitalia last week that you needed to branch it over into this episode I as well. I want it to be a theme. <laughs> and you know what? If it's not in the lawsuit, I'll just bring it up anyway. <laughs> From here on out, it's yeah. all genitalia for Kristen. That's right. <laughs> Send all genitalia lawsuits. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. That'd be great. I mean, I've got I've got one in mind for you. Oh, Loretta Loretta Bobbitt. Bobbitt. Okay, for some reason, when you first said that, I was like, I thought you were talking about a personal issue. No. Like, I think I've got my own genitalia under control. Thank you very much. You never know. You need some acid. <laughs> That'll cure what ails you. Sunshine, exercise, and acid. I do want to say this other thing, even though I only saw it on Wikipedia. So let's just hope this is not true. Yeah. Let's pray to God. So obviously he did the thing like, oh, you can circumcise boys without anesthesia. Mm -hmm. That'll freak him out. Yeah. The other thing he recommended was if you were uncircumcised, like taking the foreskin up, sewing enough of it shut so that if you ever did get an erection, it would be horribly painful. Oh my God! Now let's pray that that's some Wikipedia bullshit. That somebody just made that up? Yeah. Oh God, I hope so. I know. That is horrific. So I say that like, I know I'm talking shit on him, but (laughs) he had a lot of great theories. He really pushed medicine forward. Right. But he was also, he was also super into eugenics, which is that Mm. creepy, you Mm -hmm. know, we'll breed only the best. (laughs) (laughs) Which was super popular in America for uh-huh. a long time. And then um, Hitler really admired our yes. eugenics stuff, which, like, yes. if Hitler is an admirer yes. of yours, you gotta rethink you gotta really some rethink things. your life. There. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't want to, I didn't want a compliment from this man. Yeah. So, another thing, he did get married and they had eight children, but they were all adopted children. It's rumored that he and his wife never had sex. I was going to say that they never had sex, right? So at least he wasn't a hypocrite. Yeah. Practice what he preached, I guess. Okay, now, this could just be me, 
like, I have a tendency to think everybody's gay. <laughs> but. Well. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're out of line. No, okay, I don't think you're out I mean, of line I guess at all. That's, that's because what... in that time specifically, uh-huh. this that could very much be his way of dealing with things that he, in his religion and in himself, found unnatural. And yeah. so that was his way of coming to terms with those feelings. That is immediately where my mind went. Yeah. And really, anytime anybody's too like, you should never have a sexual thought, I'm like, what are your sexual <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> Methinks you protest too much. But someone else's opinion on this, who um, may be slightly uh, better researched on this, um, it's Howard Markle, the guy who wrote The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, which I checked out from the library yesterday. I love it. Um, So he did an interview on NPR, and his theory was more like, look, he was a doctor. He saw a lot of guys who had syphilis, some really horrible STDs yeah. that at the time they couldn't do much for. So Howard Markle's theory is maybe that just freaked him out. Well, yeah. Which... That could be too. Yeah, it totally could be. Or it could be both. Yes. <laughs> Gay and freaked out by yes. STDs. I mean, sure. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. I feel like I've talked about him enough. That's John Harvey Kellogg. Uh Big time doctor, very well respected, blah, blah, blah. Anti-masturbation, even though that has nothing to do with anything. Let's get it in there. (laughs) (laughs) I am feeling embarrassed knowing that, like, this is the last time we're talking about this because it has nothing to do with anything. I just was fascinated. (laughs) Eventually, John needed basically a business manager for the Battle Creek Sanatorium. So he turned to his little brother, Will. And John thought this would be, you know, such an honor for anyone to do this job. But no one else really wanted to do it because (laughs) it was just this insanely shitty job Mm -hmm. where you would have to do all kinds of work, all kinds of hours for like next to no pay. A little bit about Will. Mm -hmm. Will, as I said, was eight years younger than John. He dropped out of school at 13. A lot of people thought he was just dumb. Mm Mm-hmm. And he thought it, too. I think he really came to believe that he was just kind of this dummy who would mm-hmm. always be under his brother. Right. Now, interestingly, he was nearsighted. Mm. Probably it was just that he couldn't see the board. Yeah. And, you know, he just couldn't see stuff. Yeah. And that's why it took him so long. It wasn't that he was slow. Yeah. It was just that he didn't have good eyesight. Mm-hmm. Which makes you wonder how many people were in that boat. Oh, probably. It was really common. Yeah. Yeah. So, John always treated Will badly. He looked down on him, thought he was stupid, he beat him up. But Will went to work for John, and eventually his salary grew to $3 a day. Uh, but that sucked even then. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> was like, well, were they happy with that? No, no. they were not. No. <laughs> Will worked 80-plus hour weeks, usually more like 120. Wow. Um, and he did everything. He served patients. He chased lunatics who got loose. Okay, this is where I was I was a little bit confused before. So I, was, okay. I always associate sanitarium with like a loony bin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you didn't mention loony bin. You said hospital, like club med, uh-huh. you know, type of thing. So I thought I was wrong, but there it is partially. I, I assume. Okay. I assume they had kind of a mix of okay. people. Anyway, continue on. Um, so I was embarrassed that maybe I had the the um, definition of sanitarium wrong in my brain. You should be very embarrassed. Because <laughs> I can rattle off the definition right now. 
I just choose not to. <laughs> so the other tough thing that Will had to do was he had to take all of John's wild ideas that mm-hmm. he was always coming up with and try to make them profitable and make them good for business. Um, another gross thing that Will had to do was... So John, the doctor, was obviously very obsessed with bowel movements. And mm-hmm. he thought, you know, a proper bowel movement was an indicator for how healthy you were. Which you know, this yes. is funny that you mentioned this. Because when mm. I was a kid, uh-huh. whenever you would go to the nurse, uh-huh. the first question she would ask was, when was the last time you had a bowel movement? And I always thought that was the weirdest question. But it's... I, in the medical field, apparently, they're just obsessed with shits. She only asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... My life has been a lot. <laughs> no, you're right, yeah, though. Yes. I mean, they, it's gross, but, like, they yeah. always say you should have the S-shaped yes. poo, which, you know, if I ever do, man, that'll be a hell of a day. <laughs> <laughs> but they do say it's it's a huge yeah. indicator for... Health. Whether you're getting yes. enough good nutrition, yeah. blah, 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 mm-hmm. how many Totino's pizzas you're eating. <laughs> you're like, they can tell by the look that turn. <laughs> so, John was obsessed with bowel yeah. movements, as a lot of doctors are, um, but he was so busy. Mm-hmm. So what he would do, this is so fucking gross, he would go have a bowel movement, then he'd send Will in to go look at it and take notes. Because, you know, like, he was too busy. Oh my god! <laughs> I know, I know. So that just, like, that is, that, just that is not worth the three dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I need six. Yeah, yeah. I say that just because, like, there are a lot of stories I could tell about their relationship. But man, I think that, that says a lot. Says a lot, mm-hmm. absolutely. On to a little bit more about the vegetarian diet. John had this theory that exciting foods and drinks led to sexual arousal. <laughs> you're eating too much meat, you're eating too much spice, you're gonna have to masturbate, you're gonna have to have sex. The best way to stop that is to eat really bland food. Oh. Okay? So that was his theory, so he served a lot of really bland food in his sanitarium. Now, another thing that was going on at this time. So, we're talking like late 1800s. Around this time, if you had a little money for breakfast, you would eat Fried eggs, bacon, mm-hmm. maybe some potatoes. <laughs> Do you have a hair in your in mouth? mouth? <laughs> <laughs> You're not just excited about these eggs and bacon. My mouth was watery at the thought of eggs and bacon. No, I think I had a, a cat hair in my mouth. <laughs> I don't know how. We only have three animals in this house. So, at that time, a really common... Breakfast, if you had any kind of money at all, yeah. it was like fried eggs, potatoes, bacon, usually cooked in lard. You know, mm-hmm. really unhealthy. Sounds delicious. Delicious, <laughs> yeah, but yes. But, but unhealthy for Yes. You. Or alternatively, you might have porridge or mush. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the crazy thing is, even though that sounds disgusting, like making that took forever. Mm-hmm. Women would have to wake up insanely early start the fire put this stuff on for hours and hours mm-hmm. boil it down and then you know you'd have maybe a more nutritious meal but yeah you know definitely not tasty in 1894 the kellogg brothers start trying to make cereals mm-hmm. which would really revolutionize things because all of a sudden this you could have something healthy that wouldn't take hours and hours and hours mm-hmm. to make it just come in a box boom you're done they took out some wheat dough one night. They boiled it. They pressed it. Kept working at this, but nothing ever really worked out. Mm-hmm. 
Then one night, Will, the younger brother, left the dough out overnight just as an accident, mm-hmm. which changed the texture mm-hmm. of it quite a bit. And so when he rolled it out the next day, it flaked up. Mm-hmm. 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 Delicious! Mm-hmm. So John, the older brother, was like, oh, let's make this into crumbles. But Will said, no, 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 I think people will really like these flakes. They're crunchy, people will enjoy them. They serve them to the people in the sanitarium, and they're like... This is amazing. We want more. Yes. A cereal is born. Yes. (laughs) John went out immediately and got a patent for flaked cereal, Mm -hmm. which is such a very John thing to do. You know, he's the doctor. He's like, okay, let's let me get credit for this flaked cereal. Mm -hmm. Will started selling it, I think maybe like in kind of like a mail to order way and, you know, just to patients who were there. So Mm -hmm. he was making a nice little profit, but nothing crazy. And Will started to see, like, hey, there's some promise here. People really like this stuff. This mm-hmm. could change the way Americans eat breakfast. Yeah. I want to I wanna really take this and run with it. Mm-hmm. I want to do a great job with this. But John didn't like that idea. So they start arguing back and forth. John said, that business sounds way too risky, which it is. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, he had some other reasons, but my personal theory (laughs) is that he didn't want Will to have any independent success. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Will was upset, but he felt really trapped. And this makes me feel so bad for Will. So I'm just going to read. This is from an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. It's a really Mm -hmm. good article. And uh, it says, The high risks and his lack of self-confidence still held him back. I am lamentably ignorant, he wrote his son. The competition in the business world is such that people with good educations are usually those who succeed. Besides, he was over 40 years old. He resented his brother, but stayed with him anyway. Oh. I know. I feel terrible for him. Yeah. Like, all his life, he's totally dumb, and then he Mm -hmm. comes up with this, just kind of mistakenly falls into this amazing thing, and then he doesn't even feel like he has what it takes to... Yeah. Kind of bring it to the world. I think that's what makes it sad for me. It's one thing for people to tell you you're stupid. Yeah. It's a whole other thing when you believe, believe it. Believe it. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're like, no, I can't. There's no way it. I can do this. Yeah. yeah. And I hate my older brother, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm old. You know, he's saying yeah. I'm over 40. I'm done. Yeah. It honestly, it makes me think of like a typical abusive relationship where you feel like, I want to leave, but I'm too scared to leave. No one else is going to want me. Yeah, Yeah. it really is. It's a different take on that. But yeah, yeah, it is very similar undertones. Yeah. That's rough. So, Will felt like he had to stay. But at the same time, they kept fighting. And what they really got into a huge fight over was sugar. So, John the doctor was anti-sugar, anti-salt, anti-all that. Mm -hmm. But Will was like, you know what would make these things taste better? <laughs> Some sugar. <laughs> so, and I didn't write this down, but I think I think what happened was at some point John went out of town. He was constantly going over to Europe to kind of study the mm-hmm. latest medi- medical technologies. And while he was out of town, Will put some sugar on mm-hmm. the cornflakes. And guess what? People enjoyed that. Yes. <laughs> Were they great? God. <laughs> You know, I wondered when you would come up with a terrible joke. How did I not see that coming? So Tony the Tiger stepped in. He's like, Will, get confident. 
you know, at this point, Will's getting a little more confident. He's getting ready to kind of get the hell out of the sanitarium. When the Battle Creek Sanitarium burned down in 1902, Will kind of made a deal. He's like, look, John, I'm going to help you rebuild this. Then I'd like to leave for good. Mm -hmm. And Will had worked there for 22 years at this point. Mm -hmm. So here's how Will left. Will asked permission to start his own cereal company. He asked his brother permission. Mm -hmm. Then he bought the cereal company from John. Because, you know, John, the Battle Creek Sanitarium was selling their own foods at this point, including cereals. So he bought that from John. And he also gave John money plus stock in his new company. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, did it the right way. Yeah. I mean, he didn't just take off. He really tried to make things right. I think it's become clear which side Kristen is on. <laughs> I am slightly biased uh, toward Will. Big Will fan here. Not so much John, although I am glad he convinced us all to shower regularly. He did some good stuff. So now it's 1906, and Will has his own cereal company, and it's doing great. Mm-hmm. And he starts to kind of realize... Maybe I'm not such a dummy after yeah. all. You know, all this time at the Battle Creek Sanitarium doing all these different types of jobs, he became a pretty good businessman because mm-hmm. he'd done a lot. So he starts to focus on cornflakes because that's the cereal that everyone loves. It's where he's making the most profit, so he kind of goes all in on cornflakes. He puts his signature on every box to show authenticity because there were a ton of other imitators at the time. There are so many lawsuits about mm-hmm. this cereal. It's unbelievable. And he had a really tough go of it at first because grocery stores didn't want to carry Mm -hmm. this new product. So he got really creative. One of the things he did was he sent coupons out to customers saying, here's, you know, go into your grocery store and ask for your free box of Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Mm -hmm. So they'd go in and the grocery (laughs) store would be like, oh, we don't have that. And so it was kind of a reminder to the grocery, like, you need to carry this stuff. People are asking about it. Another really creative tactic he used, which I think this is like, this is weird and so funny. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education article. He took out ads in New York publications saying, Wednesday is wink day in New York. And so the idea was, it was this ad targeted at housewives, telling them to go into their grocery store go up to the grocer and wink at him on this specific Wednesday, and then they'd get a free box of Kellogg's cornflakes. And he sent out, you know, info to grocery stores that were like, hey, look, if somebody winks at you on Monday or Tuesday, don't do it. But on Wednesday, you give out as many boxes as you want. And then all of a sudden, it became this huge success. Yeah. Which I have to wonder how John felt about that. Because that, I mean, if you're anti-masturbating, anti-sex... You're probably anti-winking. I was going to say, yes, because that's a pretty risque thing. I mean, and this was like 1907. Yeah. I don't know that I'd go into my local... I don't think I'd do it now. Yeah, I I would feel really weird. I'll just pay for the cornflakes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So anyway, over time, Will became really rich. And boxed cereals swept the nation. People loved them. He became pretty well-known, but he stayed really humble. He gave away a lot of his money to charity. He was just kind of doing his thing and happy to be on his own. Was John happy for his brother? Uh, I'm going to go with no. No, 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 no. John was super jealous. 
for decades, he'd been the famous Kellogg. And he still was the famous Kellogg, which is so irritating. Like, he, he was incredibly famous, way more famous than Will. But just mm-hmm. the fact that Will was getting a little bit of success, just John couldn't handle mm-hmm. it at all. John accused Will of writing his coattails, of ruining the Kellogg name that he'd built. And John basically went around saying, like, I'm the real Kellogg. You know, I'm the one with the right to this name. Here's where it gets shitty. (laughs) (laughs) You ready? (laughs) Like I said, for years, John had been creating his own cereals. Uh, But he'd always marketed them under the name Sanitas or Sanitarium Foods. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that was, like, at that time... It was seemed kind of as unethical for a doctor to promote, you know, be mm-hmm. too self-promoting. Yeah. I mean, it still kind of is. But once Will started to make headway in the cereal industry, John started his selling his cereals again, this time under the name The Kellogg's Food Company of Battle Creek. Hmm. Yeah. After Will had already he bought got the yeah. whole thing and done all this money in advertising. I mean, that was his big strategy, was to pour a ton of money into advertising. Yeah. And all of a sudden now, his older brother is back on the scene, mm-hmm. putting Kellogg all over mm-hmm. his cereal boxes. That pissed Will off, for all the reasons that I just stated. But also because he bought that cereal business yeah. from John. So he's just sitting there quietly seething. Then, in 1908, John told Will that he was going to trademark the name Kellogg. Wow. Yeah. That is messed up. That's not right at all. Yeah. Hmm. He also told Will that he planned to change the name of his company from Sanitas Nut Food Company to Kellogg's Food Company. John then said he wouldn't do any of that, though, if Will would give him $500,000 worth of stock in his company. He already gave him stock in the Mm -hmm. company, and he bought it from him. Mm -hmm. No. Will, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is just... The nerve of this guy is unreal. And, you know, he was very disingenuous this whole time, because he was like, I'm going to trademark the name Kellogg because there are a bunch of quacks out there. And there there were quacks out there Mm -hmm. with the name Kellogg trying to... But the reason he wanted to trademark was... Exactly. You know, because he was, you know, being really shitty with Will. Right. But John maintained that he wasn't doing anything shady. He said that the contract that they signed in 1906, where Will bought the cereal company, was about specific grains. And he's like, I'm not using those specific grains in my cereal, so you can't get mad. You know, you, that contract was very, very specific. I'm, you know, I'm doing this other thing over here. Bullshit. <laughs> yes. 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 Wow. I was like, I bought the cereal company. You're making yeah. cereal. You're putting the name Kellogg all over it. Yeah. No. Who's riding whose coattail Yeah, now? exactly, you jerk. Uh, yes. Also, John always dressed in white and had a big white mustache, which makes me think of Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders, Sanders yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's just a, an important aside. Yes. That will be important now. later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to picture him like the crispy colonel. Crispy kernel. Yeah, you know, like the KFC commercials where they have like the different kernels. So the crispy kernel is George Hamilton, who's very tan. <laughs> oh. Well, he did like his sunlight. Yeah. See? Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. John also said, by the way, take your name off your cereal boxes. Mm. People are mistaking you for me. 
Oh, nice. He sounds like a really nice guy. Oh, it gets better. It gets so much better. So this is from the book, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. Basically, at this point, Will went off. Mm -hmm. He wrote John a letter that said, For 22 and a half years, I had absolutely lost all my individuality in you. I tried to see things with your eyes and not do things as you would do them. Then it goes on to say, Were it not for the fact that I am under obligations to the stockholders of the Toasted Cornflake Company, I want to assure you that in my present state of mind, I would sell out my holdings in Battle Creek and try some other climate. Wow. He, at this point, wished he could just walk away. Because it just wasn't worth it to him. You know, I I really don't think he was in it for the money. I think he just wanted to do something. That he could be proud of. Yes. That was something that was his. And not go take notes on some other dude's bowel movements. Yeah. Oh, the other thing, I forgot to mention. In those 22 years that he worked at the sanitarium, John made Will call him Dr. Kellogg the whole time. Okay, now. Yeah. Yeah. What a dick. (laughs) (laughs) So meanwhile, Will's pushing back, but John's still selling his cereals and claiming that Will's signature on the cereal boxes is confusing customers and it's harming his reputation, which was just bullshit. That is bullshit. At one point, Will went to John's house to try to hug it out. And he was like, look, let's not have a legal battle. Let's not do all this. We don't need to... We don't need to make this ugly. A legal battle will be embarrassing for both of us. We're brothers. He offered John, like, can we do a cease and desist? And Will offered John even more cash and stocks for just a cease and desist. And John agreed to it until it came time to sign anything. And then John backed out. (laughs) So by that point, Will had finally had it. He was like, you know what? Let's go to court. (laughs) Gave me so much pride to write that. (laughs) It's so meta. (laughs) So, you know, I I love this because finally, after all these years, all this bullshit. He's going to stand up. Will's like, you know what? You're threatening me with lawsuits and all this stuff. I'm taking you to court now. Yeah. So, August 1910. Oh, my God. My cat is licking her butthole. She's doing it very noisily, too. <laughs> Does this qualify as self-abuse? <laughs> willing to bet the Dr. Kellogg would say yes. Should we take her out of here? Soon? Yeah, she's fine. Okay. Let her do a business. Okay. You, can, you can stare at her. <laughs> You're no John Kellogg. You're not going to put an end to this. In August of 1910, Will requested an injunction. And the judge denied it, saying, hey, that injunction could bankrupt John. We need to hear all the facts. There's not going to be some quick decision here. So, okay. Mm -hmm. So, Will's side in this case was, John is deliberately confusing customers. He's taking advantage of all my advertising, of my established brand, and he's trying to kind of pass his stuff off as mine. And he also gets a little dig in here there. He goes... John's cereals are not as good as mine. <laughs> they are not tasty. And part of it was he didn't add any salt. He didn't add any sugar. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the crunch quite right. Yeah. He was like, look, people are going to go in to a grocery store. They're going to see that Kellogg label, and they're going to think it's mine. And they're going to take that home. They're going to eat it, and they're going to be like, this is disgusting. I'm never buying this again. Yes. <laughs> so, so Will was like, they, this, needs to be, this needs to stop. John immediately countersued. Well, and he said, and this was, this was a good legal argument. He was like, 
I'm the real Kellogg. I'm the one who established this name. He comes to court with this huge list of celebrity patients, a list of all the important lectures he's mm-hmm. done. And again, I, I hate to say anything that John did was right, but like that's that's a really good legal argument it for is. you know who who owns this name? Well, the celebrity. Yeah. He said, I'm a respected physician with an impeccable reputation all over the world, which was true. When people think of Kellogg, they think of me. Again. Yeah. True. 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 Also, Will is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) He said, Will really didn't have much to do with creating the cereals. He's just riding my coattails. Bologna sandwiches! He made the cereal! Mm -hmm. Maybe by accident, but But he still still, did it! That was his accident. And, you know, I think he also pointed out, probably, that he was the one who had the patent for flaked cereals. Mm Because, you know, Will was the one who who did that, but John John was the one. ran out and got the patent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I knew that was going to come back. (laughs) Bite poor Will and his little behind. Little butt. Little vegetarian butt. (laughs) Poor guy. This, again, comes from the book, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. John and Will were very different on the witness stand, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. I love this. Will told his legal team, hey, if you want to get under John's skin and make him look bad, just question his credentials. Just, just, you know, (laughs) ask him some questions that make it clear that you're not that impressed by him, that you don't (laughs) think he's that great, and he will Uh, lose it. it. Yeah. Uh, Turns out Will knew his brother pretty well. John was really easy to fire up. The author of this book said that, you know, at times he was really brilliant on the witness stand, but he he was just kind of a bad witness. He was too caught up in himself. Will, on the other hand, was much more calm, and he used the strategy of, I don't know. He Even though he had a really good memory, mm-hmm. and it's clear he was full of shit, right. um, occasionally he'd be like, oh, I, I just can't remember that. I, I can't do rem- not recall. I do not recall. <laughs> Which, I've been thinking about that, and I, it's so funny because I always get annoyed with, oh, I don't recall, I don't remember. I get annoyed with that kind of evasiveness. But at the same time, reading about it, I'm thinking, that's a strategy that someone who is totally full of themselves can't pull off. Exactly, because they would never be willing to say, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't know, I'm not sure, I can't remember, because they're... Yeah. That would be below them. Even if it were the truth. Absolutely. It's funny because it made me think of all the times I've done media training for people. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things to do with someone who is really good at their job, really confident, and a great communicator is to get them in an interview to be comfortable saying something to the equivalent of, I don't know, or let me get someone who can mm-hmm. answer that question for you. Because... The worst thing you can do is not say, I don't know. The worst thing you can do is give someone the wrong information. Absolutely. You know? but, it's, yes. but it's hard for some yes. people. They want to just come out with something. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that Will did in his testimony was he said, look, we created these cereals in partnership. We were working mm-hmm. together. It's just that John got all the credit. It wasn't that I, you know, wasn't there or didn't know what I was doing. It was we mm-hmm. were working together. In 1911, they settled out of court. And will let John name his company the Kellogg Food Company, but never display the name on cereal boxes. 
He mm-hmm. also allowed John to put John's signature on his cereal boxes, but only in a really tiny type and not on like the front or back of the box, only like mm-hmm. on the side or the bottom. Will also paid John $10,000 and let John sell back all the shares of his company at an inflated price. He also let John sell a version of Corn Flakes internationally. In exchange, John agreed that Will's company was the, quote, sole and exclusive owner of the trademark Kellogg's on prepared food products. Mm. So, <laughs> I, I read that and I so think, So Will, Will just bent over? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Oh my gosh. That's how I see yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he kind of... He did get a backbone. He sued his brother, but then when it came down to it, he was like, God, can we just be done yeah. with this? Like, you know, just just let me be the sole and exclusive owner of this trademark mm-hmm. for foods, and we're good. You mm-hmm. can have, like, everything, everything else. Oh, my gosh. So you would think that John would be <laughs> Satisfied with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You would be so wrong. <laughs> After they've come to this agreement, which, again, is so fucking favorable to John. Shut up, John. You know? Right. John created a new cereal. Oh, my gosh. Bran Flakes. Bran Flakes! <laughs> Aimed at curing <laughs> constipation. <laughs> They're slogans that keeps you moving. <laughs> some of these ads... I looked at some of these ads. They are really funny. Like, yeah. Anyway. Um... So he borrowed a page from his little brother's book by leaning heavily on advertising, um, which is interesting because his brother was so dumb. Dumb, yeah. yeah. So, hmm. And of course, he put the name Kellogg on the outer label, mm-hmm. which was like the one thing he wasn't yeah. supposed to do. And John felt totally fine doing this, and his logic was, "Oh, our settlement was all about cornflakes, not bran flakes." <laughs> so what does Will do? Will's like, all right, (laughs) I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. And I I love this. So instead of like fighting this or doing, you know, fighting this in kind of the methods he'd used in the past, instead, Will immediately released four different types of brand cereal. (laughs) Just to be like, (laughs) yeah, in your face. Exactly. So John nearly shat himself. little poop joke. Uh, And he filed a restraining order against Will's company. What? Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, Which just, can you believe this man? Right. Yeah. So trial started in 1917. And much to John's chagrin, the judge found for Will on every single point. Good. He dismissed all of John's claims. And ruled that Will's company was entitled to all of the profits that John made off of cereals for the previous decade. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. The judge told John to stop putting the name Kellogg's on his food. And that the name Kellogg, when it came to food, belonged to Will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there were some little exceptions, but this was a huge win for yeah. Will. And I can't believe that John even thought he would win. At right. This. I mean, it's just, it shows how arrogant yeah. he was. Are we done? I'm guessing no. no. <laughs> so John was pissed. He took this to the Michigan Supreme Court. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. 
Just before Christmas 1920, the eight-judge panel voted unanimously in favor of the previous court's decision. In addition, the court also ordered John to pay all of Will's legal bills. Wow. Huge. They had done so much. And so now, now John had to pay a ton of money. But trying to be a nice guy, Will told John, hey, don't worry about paying me for the profits for the cereal you've sold over the past 10 years. Like, we're square. Mm-hmm. And John didn't have a ton of money, actually. He was he was not a great businessman. He was just famous and had a lot of money coming in. But, yeah. You know. So Will tries to do this really nice thing for his brother. Mm-hmm. What does John do? <laughs> John was pissed that he would even that he would basically even say that yeah and so he immediately wrote him a check for the full amount and um he said he paid everything so that will would have quote no excuse for pestering me further really Mm -hmm. pestering me Mm -hmm. so after that you know the that legal battle went on for almost 10 years yeah after that they barely spoke in the book, it says that Will didn't like it when other people talked badly about John, but he loved to do it himself. <laughs> <laughs> Been there. <laughs> it's called having a family. That's right. <laughs> so there was just, there was a ton of bitterness there because anytime they did speak, Will always wanted a third party present just to witness it, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of, yeah, yeah I, I don't blame him at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just to kind of close this thing out, both brothers lived a really long time. I think both of them made it to their 90s. Wow. Yeah. Turns out that diet worked out pretty well. (laughs) Two years before he died, John wrote Will a letter asking for forgiveness. Wow. Yeah. He praised Will's talents, said Will had better judgment than he'd ever had, and he wanted to make things right. He wanted to make amends. Oh, my gosh. Are you ready for the sad part? Oh, God. I know. So, you know, he he finally does this letter. Yeah. His secretary, who had been taking it down for him, because, you know, he was a frail old man yeah. at this point. She didn't like the letter. She thought it was kind of embarrassing and beneath him. And weak, yeah. So she sealed it up, put it in the back of a drawer somewhere. I never sent it? Never sent it. <gasps> John died a couple years later, you know, thinking that Will had gotten the letter and just didn't forgive him. Oh, no. Then, seven years after that letter was written, somehow someone found it, and they sent it to Will. So at this point, Will is blind. He's kind of on his deathbed, too. Someone reads him the letter, and... um, I couldn't really figure out what what his reaction was to that. I couldn't find anything yeah. on that. But he died a few years later after falling into a coma. Oh, my gosh. That bitch of a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. And I, you know, I'm... I know we're supposed to be experts. I'm not really an expert, but, like, John... <laughs> John had kind of a history of writing letters that seemed nice. Yeah. And so part of me wonders how sincere. How, what was he trying to get I out of it? I hope it was. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'm just being awful right yeah. now. Um, well. Because. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. No, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> 
I choose to believe that he yeah. finally come to his senses. And one would hope, like once yeah. you've lived that long and you look back on your life and like, why, why did I do that to my own brother? Yeah, yeah, that's really sad. It is really sad. Huh. It's funny. Like I feel like we talk about a lot of really tragic stuff. <laughs> and no one died here. I right. mean, you know, there wasn't any horrible, violent yeah. death. But it's just, it's really sad. It is. It's sad. That for almost 10 years, first of all, they'd had this horrible relationship. Horrible relationship, relationship. yeah. But then for like almost 10 years, it was like John was just, yeah. just doing what he could to be awful mm-hmm. to his brother. Exactly. For no reason. Just because he didn't like the idea of another Kellogg having yeah. success. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a good one. I'd never heard of that. I saw a drunk history on it. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if it talked about the legal battle, but it was just like, the story of those two brothers is just unreal. Yeah. yeah. And so what's funny is, I was thinking about, like, oh, God, Will was so much better than John, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because, like, the other thing was, Will was this huge philanthropist. He gave mm-hmm. away tons of money. Wow. But at the same time, John John did so much for medical, not, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, if you just think about convincing people to shower. That's regularly. what I was about to say. That like, that's a ton of lies. That is huge. Yeah, and yeah. like, oh, maybe we shouldn't eat bacon yeah. all the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a big deal. Maybe we should up the brand. <laughs> yeah. Have a poop every now yes. and then. <laughs> okay. This is the story of three eight-year-old boys who set off on a bike ride around their hometown of West Memphis, Arkansas. The next afternoon, their bruised and mutilated, hog-tied, naked bodies oh. were pulled from a stream, setting off an all-out effort to find their murderers. This is also the story of three out-of-the-mainstream teenagers who would become known as the West Memphis Three. I got a lot of this info included here from uh, famoustrials.com. So thank you, Professor Douglas O. Linder, for mm-hmm. that awesome website full of amazing info. Yeah. All right. This is a rough one. I I hate this one, but I love this one. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, are you okay? <laughs> yes. Okay. On the evening of May 5th, 1993, the police in West Memphis, Arkansas, received three calls within a 90-minute period from three different parents reporting their young sons missing. Mm-hmm. The first came from John Mark Byers. He reported that his son, Christopher, was last seen in their yard at 5.30. The next came from Dana Moore, who said her son had ridden off on his bike with two friends around 6 o'clock, but had failed to return for dinner. The third came from Pamela Hobbs, who said she hadn't seen her son, Stevie Branch, since he left for school. The news of the three missing eight-year-old boys resulted in a search of the Robin Hood Hills, a four-acre wooded area nearby where the boys would often play, though that search uncovered nothing that night. At eight o'clock the following morning, the police began a more in-depth search for the missing boys. The Crittenden County Search and Rescue Team canvassed all of West Memphis, focusing heavily on the Robin Hood Hills, as it was reportedly the last place the boys had been seen. Despite a shoulder-to-shoulder search of the area, searchers found no sign of the missing boys. 
This was a four-acre area? Yeah, kind of a wooded area, just kind of, like, off to the side of town. West Memphis is um, not what I would call a rural area, but it's a suburb for sure, and it's... um, it's kind of below a mix. Yeah. the pro- poverty line, okay. lots of trailer parks and gotcha. lower income housing mm-hmm. type of area. Just before two o'clock that day, Steve Jones, a juvenile parole officer, saw a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to a drainage canal running through the Robin Hood Hills. A search of that ditch located the naked bodies of the three oh, missing boys. God. They were hogtied with their own shoelaces, and their clothing was found nearby. All of the boys had various lacerations to their bodies, though Christopher Byers were the worst. His face was severely bludgeoned, and his genitals had been mutilated. Oh my gosh. Byers' death was caused by this mutilation, while the other boys' deaths were caused by drowning, meaning that they were thrown hog-tied into the water while they were still breathing. Oh, my God. And they're eight years old. Eight years old. So this is interesting. This happened in, um, like, 1993. So we would have yeah. been right around that same age yeah, at we that time. Been. Yeah, Yeah. So these boys were our age. Mm-hmm. Police believe that the boys were assaulted and killed at the location that they were found. Though experts would later opine that the lack of blood here proved that it was merely a dumping ground. Um, but it was in a ditch, right? It was With in water? a ditch, okay. but there wasn't a t- it wasn't like a deep area. Okay. It was like a creek. But the mutilation alone, would, he bled out from that. That's how he died. So there God, would have been... Way to die. There would have been a ton of blood. Yeah. And there's none okay. here. Um... Word of the mutilation quickly spread, and rumors that the killings had been some kind of satanic ritual quickly followed. Mm-hmm. Following the discovery of th- the three boys, a witness came forward and said she had seen Damien Eccles walking with another boy on the edge of Robin Hood Hills between 9.30 and 10 p.m. on the evening of May 5th, and that they were both covered in mud. Prosecutors would later argue that the murders took place at this time, though the medical examiner would place the time of death between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. Hmm. 18-year-old Damien Eccles was well-known to authorities in West Memphis. He had spent time in the juvenile detention center for shoplifting and had recently spent time in a psychiatric hospital for severe depression. They knew him to have an interest in witchcraft and suspected he was involved in Satanism. He wore a lot of black. Yeah, that's what that's code for. Yep. Because <laughs> wasn't... The early 90s, wasn't that kind of when people had this panic? Well, that's that, exactly yeah. what I was going to say. So really, like, satanic panic really was more in the 80s, but, like, it, there was definitely satanic panic still happening here. I'm okay. thinking it's, you know, because it was... A, you know, kind of not a city area. It was kind of things, you know, kind of trends lag behind there. So it was the satanic panic was still very much in effect in West Memphis mm-hmm. when this when this crime took place. Okay. He also listened to Metallica, which was like the devil's Woo! music to the people yeah. in that town. Okay. Yes. Between May 7th and May 10th, Damien Eccles was interviewed multiple times about his involvement in the murders. Mm-hmm. Each time, he denied having any involvement, provided an alibi for his whereabouts, and even agreed to take a polygraph. 
Investigators heavily focused their questioning of Damien on his religious beliefs. He told them that he was a practicing Wiccan Mm -hmm. and that his beliefs centered around the power of the earth and nature and that Wiccans do not believe in God or the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, And how old is he again? 13? No, he's 18. 18. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So... Wiccan to police officers means he's an evil sorcerer. Uh-huh. Uh, summoning, yeah. you know. Murdering eight-year-olds. Absolutely. Yeah. On May 10th, without any legal representation present, Eccles sat for a polygraph test. Ugh. Of the ten questions asked, the polygraph examiner ruled that, in his opinion, five answers were indicative of possible deception. Polygraphs are bullshit. Um, you just wait. Okay. <laughs> Um, So, Pam Eccles, who's Damien's mom, told police that her son could not possibly have been involved as he was home with her the night of the killings, talking on the phone with his friends. Mm -hmm. Says, there's no way he could have been there. I know where he was. He was at my home. He was with me. Yeah. In the meantime, Vicki Hutchison, a new resident in the West Memphis area, and her son were making statements to the police. On the day that the bodies were discovered, Vicky happened to be at the police department taking a polygraph exam to determine whether or not she had taken money from her employer. She brought her eight-year-old son Aaron with her, and he was such a distraction that the detective was actually unable to administer the polygraph. Aaron happened to be a playmate of the three little boys, and while he was running amok in the police station, he mentioned that the boys were killed in the playhouse. When pressed by detectives, Aaron claimed that he had witnessed the murders committed by Satanists who spoke Spanish. Oh my. Yeah. What the hell? Yes. Aaron's further statements were wildly inconsistent, and he was unable to identify any suspects from photo lineups, and there was no playhouse at the location Aaron indicated. A police officer leaked portions of Aaron's statement to the press, contributing to the growing belief that the murders were part of a satanic rite. Which, oh, God. I understand, like, hearing what happened to those. Yeah. You think, okay, there is something. Unnatural. Like, no normal human could do that to an eight-year-old boy. Not even just a standard murderer. Right. this is. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, on June 2nd, 1993... Vicky told police that she knew Damien Eccles through her neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly, and that two weeks after the murders, she had traveled with the two of them to a Wiccan orgy where a drunken Eccles bragged about killing the three little boys. They gave her a polygraph and determined that she was being truthful. And so now they had their, their first real suspects. Later, Vicky would admit that her testimony was completely fabricated to avoid charges in her theft case mm-hmm. and to attempt to claim the reward money for the discovery of the murders. Oh. Yeah. So that's how oh. that's how effective those polygraphs are. Well, did you have you heard the guy who invented polygraphs is now adamantly against yes there's a fascinating podcast that i can't remember what what it is but um i think it was a this american life Uh they interviewed him Uh i mean it just yeah never take a polygraph yeah so 
Convinced by the polygraph results that they now know who the killers are, detectives brought in Jesse Miss Kelly for questioning. Jesse Miss Kelly was a 16-year-old boy who had an IQ of 72, which puts him, like, borderline developmentally delayed. Mm-hmm. Like, he had a ninth grade education yeah. um, and dropped out of school at that point. And so with no legal representation or parents present, they tell Jesse that there's a $35,000 reward for information that would lead to a conviction and that they have reason to believe that he has information about the murders. Oh, God. They gave him a polygraph. They're like fucking Oprah at this point. You get a polygraph and you get a polygraph and you get a polygraph. It's fucking ridiculous. Can't you just picture some like really smug detectives? Well, I'm going to fire it up. Absolutely. Yes. So in his polygraph, he denied both participating in satanic rituals and having anything to do with the murders. The polygraph examiner told detectives that he was, quote, lying his ass off Mm -hmm. and they submitted jesse to hours of harsh questioning in all jesse was questioned for almost 12 hours on june 3rd though only 45 minutes of interrogation was recorded of course and those 45 minutes are fucking terrible so you can't even imagine what happened in the other 11 hours and 15 minutes. What, what do you mean by terrible? So he very clearly has no idea. Yeah. Has no information about these murders. So they ask him, you know, okay, what happened the day of the murders? And he says, um, oh, at nine o'clock that morning, um, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin called me and told me to come to the Robin Hood Hills and that we're going to kill these kids. And they're like, oh, at nine o'clock in the morning, huh? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, okay, so what time did you kill the boys? And he said, oh, we killed them at noon. And they're like, oh, well, that couldn't be because they were in school at noon. And Jesse Miss Kelly goes, well, I don't go to school. And they go, right, but the boys do. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, no, the boys skipped school that day. Oh, gosh. And they said, no, you know, that's not true. Uh, It happened after they got out of school, right? And so he's like, oh, uh, yeah, so it happened at three o'clock. And they're like, no, don't you think it was starting to get dark out when it happened? And so finally, like, they just keep feeding him this information. And then they tell him, like, they ask him about the tying up the boys. And he says, yeah, the boys were tied up with uh, rope. And they're like, Mm -hmm. no, it wasn't rope. What else could it have been? And so he just is, like, guessing at things. And finally, they feed him the information that they were tied up with their own shoelaces. Because I'm sure he thinks... I'm going to tell them what they need to hear. Yeah. And I'll go home. Yeah. So, which is basically what they've been telling him. Just tell us, you know, tell, give us the information. Mm-hmm. Tell it. We know you know. We know you're lying. Tell us the information and you're free to go. Yeah. And he doesn't know any different. And maybe get 35 grand. Exactly. And, so, and to a kid that has nothing, that sounds like, I mean, the most amount of money he could probably imagine. Sounds great to me, right? Yeah, I know, right? I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. So, yeah. So, they're just, like, giving him... Like, he clearly knows nothing. Um, he says that the that he watched Damien Eccles rape the boys. They were not raped. Mm-hmm. There was no sign of that. Like, just different things. He clearly has no idea any information. Yeah. Ultimately, he implicates Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin along with himself. 
Jesse recanted his confession almost immediately. Sure. And later said this of the detective's course of behavior. I kept telling them I didn't know who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend had told me. But they kept hollering at me. They kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people had told them. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever they was telling me, I started telling them back. But I figured something was wrong because if I'd have killed him, I'd have known how I did it. Oh, God. I mean, it's just horrible. This poor kid. Yeah. Oh, it's like so hard to there's uh footage of you know his confession and stuff and it's just horrible to listen to i mean it is it is so clear that he has no idea yeah Yeah. they're just trying to get somebody because these murders are horrible everyone's horrified they're trying to get somebody absolutely so that night police arrest damien jason and jesse and charge them all three all three of them with capital murder On August 4th, 1993, Judge David Burnett presided at a pretrial hearing in Marion, Arkansas. Burnett ruled that Miss Kelly should be tried separately from Eccles and Baldwin so that they could introduce Jesse's confession. Um, He ruled that it couldn't be used in the trial of Damien and Jason, but that it could be used against Jesse himself. And so he got his own trial. Um, Now, why did he think it couldn't be used against the other two? Uh, you know, I don't know specifically, but something about how it implicates them without a lot of fact behind it. And so... Bullshit? Yeah, okay. pretty much. Okay. So the defense argued that it was obtained over under coercive circumstances, and mm-hmm. the judge basically dismissed those claims. And then in another pretrial ruling, Burnett in- concluded that all three defendants would be tried as adults rather than juveniles. Damien was an adult. He was 18 at the time, but the others were 16 and 17. So all of them would be tried as adults. Okay. On January 18th, 1994, Jesse Miss Kelly's trial began um, in Arkansas. A jury of seven men and five women were selected, and John Fogelman gave the state's opening argument. He told jurors that while they might find errors and discrepancies in Jesse's confession, they were largely explained by Miss Kelly's efforts to minimize his own role in the killings. Hmm. He said, I think you'll find that he lessened his own involvement, but that the proof is going to show that this defendant was an accomplice to Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin in the commission of these horrifying murders. Dan Stidham, representing Jesse, said the prosecution of his client was the result of tremendous pressure for arrests in the case and the Damien Eccles tunnel vision had led to this um, and that that tunnel vision existed from day one yeah he argued that Jesse's so-called confession came when interrogators broke his will and scared him beyond all measure yeah I mean absolutely yeah The prosecution called the three little boys' parents um, to testify. They introduced gruesome pictures of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael's bodies Mm. and called a crime lab expert to testify that a fiber on one of the bodies was microscopically similar to a fiber from a bathrobe at Jesse's home. This was... Microscopically similar. Yes. This was the closest thing they had to physical evidence linking him to the crime. Oh, good That's God. all they had. Microscopically similar. So does that mean, like, 
somewhat the same material. Yes, may same. could possibly be you know the same same color could possibly be maybe the same material. Yes, one fiber, microscopically similar to a bathrobe. Mm-hmm. Okay. The defense called an expert on coercion to the stand, though most of his testimony was ruled inadmissible as the judge ruled that it was based on opinion and not fact. The judge stated that it was the jury's job to determine if Jesse's confession was involuntary, not an expert's. Oh, well. Okay. So... I'm somewhat with him there, but at the same time, you've got to, you have to be educated on exactly, and that's what to exactly, and that's what this this was this um, witness was to testify and say, you know, these are coercive tactics. This is what happens to lead somebody to give an involuntary um, confession. Yeah, and this, you know, is what I believe may have happened in this circumstance. All of that was deemed inadmissible, and so the jury didn't hear any of that. Which is so dangerous because I feel like we're learning more about false confessions mm-hmm. now. Yes. But for the longest time, people were like, why would, why would you say you did yeah, it if you didn't do it? That's just crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, Jesse did not testify in his, in his trial. Mm-hmm. The jury deliberated for only one day before returning a guilty verdict. Jesse was sentenced to life plus 40 years. Oh. Life plus, plus 40? Plus 40 years. Yep. Two weeks after the verdict in the Miss Kelly trial, jury selection began in Jonesboro, Arkansas, where the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin would take place. Only the day before the trial opened, Dan Stidham announced, Mr. Miss Kelly has made the decision last night that he is not going to testify against his co-defendants. Without Jesse's testimony, the state was left with a thin, circumstantial case, but it did have a helpful ruling from Judge Burnett, denying a motion filed by Baldwin's attorney asking that he be tried separately. Prosecutors could hope that the evidence tying Eccles to witchcraft, as well as some damaging statements by Damien, might lead to a jury's conclusion of guilt by association in Baldwin's case. Because for Jason Baldwin, they literally had nothing Uh tying him at all other than he was Damien's best friend. That's how he got dragged in. And by Jesse using his name. Uh So this is something that's interesting too. Jesse and, or I'm sorry, Jason and Damien were best friends. They lived in the same trailer park. Like they knew each other for years. They did everything together. They had matching tattoos on their knuckles. They they said evil. So... Bad choice, guys. Bad choice. But they didn't know Jesse Miss Kelly. He was an acquaintance. They knew of him. They were not friends with him. They just knew who he was and, you know, maybe had overlapped at, you know, things before. Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. So this guy they barely know. Yes. Oh. So... John Fogelman addressed the jury first, telling them the state would prove through scientific evidence and the statements of these defendants that they caused the deaths of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers. Representing Jason Baldwin, Paul Ford argued that Jason Baldwin, only 16 when he was arrested, was not a troublemaker. He took care of his younger brothers, getting them to bed and in the morning getting everybody dressed and fed to catch the bus and go to school. That's the kind of person Jason Baldwin was. 
Ford argued that his client was in court only because police had disregarded statements and the physical evidence. You'll see that this evidence that they have has been twisted and manipulated and distorted in order to make the pieces of this puzzle that they want to build fit together. And you'll see that from their own witnesses. Lastly, you will see from their own witnesses evidence that will show that Jason Baldwin is innocent. Scott Davidson, attorney for Damian Eccles, used his opening statement to address one of his biggest concerns, that the jury might find his client guilty because of some of the strange statements and actions in his past. He's not the all-American boy, David observed, Davidson observed. He's kind of weird. He's not the same as maybe you and I, but I think you'll also see that there's simply no evidence that he murdered these three kids. What do you think of that? I think it... Yes, to the jury, he does. He looks mm-hmm. weird. He's not like them. He wears black. He um, he changed his name to Damien. That's not his given name. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a tattoo that says evil. He listens to rock music. But that doesn't mean he's a murderer. No, I I um I think that was really smart. It to is. Just call it out. I yes. think it's always better to just be like. Hey, here's this thing yeah. that you and I can agree is totally We weird, can agree. He's weird, yes. But that doesn't mean Absolutely. he did this horrible thing. So the prosecution focused largely on their perceived belief of Damien's involvement in the occult and satanic worship. Detective Ridge testified that during his interrogation of Damien, he'd made observations about the mystical significance of water and noted that three, the number of boys killed, was a sacred number in the Wicca religion. Ridge also testified that Damien acknowledged reading books by Stephen King, a fact Ridge thought was strange. Um, uh, okay. (laughs) Like... One of the most famous authors. Yes, because he writes about dark material. And and no one reads it. No, no. surely not. Stephen, have you heard of him before? (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Uh, Further developing its theme of of a cult-related motive, Fogelman called Damien's former girlfriend, Deanna Holcomb, to tell jurors that Damien wore all black, and carried knives, sometimes in his trench coat pocket. An officer who conducted a search of Damien's home testified that the search turned up 11 black t-shirts. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I just, I knocked my bookcase. <laughs> 11 black t-shirts! I have a fucking closet full of black clothes. I mean, <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> How would that not be embarrassing yeah. to go say on a witness stand? Yep. So, yeah. So yeah, he testifies, my, my yeah, is, 11, uh, 11 black t-shirts. And then he also said he found a book called Never on a Broomstick, which they, you know, believed was about witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And they found the skull of a dog in his room. Okay, well, that is fucking it's weird. It's weird. I agree. Yeah. It's absolutely weird. (laughs) Doesn't make him a murderer, but it is really weird. The prosecutor also asked Judge Burnett to take a judicial notice that there was a full moon on May 5th, according to the Almanac, a request the judge found appropriate. Um, wait... A judicial notice. A judicial notice. What does that mean? Like I don't I don't know what like it is. Take, like no, take a make note, note, make a little make a little note there that there was a full 
a full moon on May 5th. When when the boys were murdered? Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> delving into the matters of the occult took center stage when calling uh, Dr. Dale Griffiths, a cult expert from Ohio. Griffiths testified that the number three was one of the most powerful numbers in the practice of satanic belief. When asked on cross-examination whether the number three might also have special significance in the Christian belief system, (gasps) obviously alluding to the Holy Uh, Trinity, Trinity, (laughs) Griffiths said, I cannot make that statement. What? (laughs) Father, son, So this guy is a nut and Uh they really the defense actually did a really good job of kind of poking holes in him because he is a doctor Mm -hmm. um an expert in cult matters of the of of the of cults and the occult is he an expert in the way that we are experts right yes absolutely so he is a doctor he has a phd in this Mm -hmm. from a male like correspondence course he never took any classes yes 100 percent and yeah, he ma- he filled out a flyer, sent it in, mailed him fifty bucks or whatever, and now no. has a certificate saying he's a doctor saying and an he's expert. A PhD. Yes. No. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so the defense then opens their case with Pam Eccles, who told jurors that her son spent most of the night on the phone. Um, and was at home with her the whole time. He was speaking to two girlfriends of his that mm-hmm. lived, you know, uh, I think they lived in Tennessee, okay. which is just over the state line. So then Damien took the stand. When asked about his interest, Damien replied, skateboarding, movies, talking on the phone and reading. Damien also explained his interest in the Wicca religion, testifying that it was basically a close involvement with nature. I'm not a Satanist, Damien insisted. I don't believe in human sacrifices or anything like that. Damien was asked to read excerpts from his personal journal. So there were like two quotes. There were two quotes that the prosecution had like kind of singled out. Mm -hmm. And so this is, I only wrote down one of them, but this is the quote. Life is but a walking shadow. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Do you know what that quote is from? No. It's Shakespeare, Midsummer <gasps> Night's Dream. Oh my god. <laughs> Did they know that? I don't know. So the other quote that they had him read were Metallica lyrics. Oh my god. Well, I'm thinking like of the diary entries I had that I wrote myself. Right. Um, my God. Yes. <laughs> you could make a case that I was a nut. Absolutely. Asked why he was, why he kept a dog skull in his bedroom, Damien replied, I don't know, I found it and I just thought it was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, asked why he had evil tattooed across his knuckles, Damien had a similar answer. I just kind of thought it was cool, so I did it. Um, question about why he always wore black. Damien responded, I was told I look good in black and I'm really self-conscious about the way I dress. God, this poor kid. I know. I mean, you think about like, why does any 18 year old get a tattoo? Yeah. I don't know. They thought it was cool. It looked cool. 
Didn't think I'd have to explain I myself. Yeah. <laughs> God. I thought it'd make girls think I was cool. Like, I mean, really? Yeah. The defense sought to present Damien as a teenager who might be different than most in West Memphis, but not as someone they should fear. Mm-hmm. Eccles denied having any having anything to do with the deaths of the three boys, testifying, I'd never even heard of them before till I saw the news. Um, asked how he felt about being charged with the murders, he said, sometimes angry, sometimes sad, sometimes scared. Yeah. Which is just... That's exactly... That's exactly that. how you would feel. Yeah. What kind of question is that? Yeah. I wonder. Like, <laughs> uh, anyway. Okay. The defense's final expert was Robert Hicks, a police training officer with expertise about satanic crime. Hicks testified that he knew of no connection between sexual mutilation and the occult. Uh, he also told jurors that we do have empirical evidence that listening to Metallica music does not lead people to commit crimes. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a lot more crime. <laughs> yes. Um, the defense rested without Jason Baldwin testifying. Their Jason Baldwin's team, their um, their kind of strat- strategy mm-hmm. was to kind of fly under the radar, like you know, yeah, not uh, bring yeah. a lot of attention to him, mm-hmm. let him just kind of blend in, and so he never testified. That he didn't. His defense didn't make a lot of waves during the how do you during feel the trial. That? I think it's kind of a bold strategy. Yeah. Um, it could pay off or it could... Yeah. It could, it's a gamble. It is. It's a real gamble. But their thought was they have no evidence of that ties him to anything, so we're just going to sit here and not say much. Yeah. Um, in closing arguments, the prosecution said, we have presented a circumstantial case with circumstantial evidence, and it's good enough for a conviction. Ooh. I hate that. It's, we're telling you it's circumstantial, but you know what? It's good enough. I hate that closing argument. I think that's terrible. Yeah. I guess that, that's part of that other thing of like, let's state our weakness Mm -hmm. right off the bat and say, don't worry, we're fine with it. Yeah. You can feel good about convicting both defendants. The defense told jurors that having weird stuff in your room doesn't mean you're a murderer and asked jurors, asked jurors to take the blindfolds off and see the case how it really was. Yeah. The jury returned their verdict the following afternoon. Oh, my. Both boys were found guilty of capital murder. Jason was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and Damien was sentenced to death. Oh, my God. I didn't realize Damien got the death sentence. Oh. Yep. Then something amazing happened. Mm-hmm. In 1996, HBO premiered the documentary Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. The documentary covered the trial and gave an in-depth view of the defendants and the families on both sides of the case. And people were pissed. Do you remember watching oh this? Oh my God. It blew my fucking mind. Yes. Like, yes. seriously. Uh, people were outraged. A movement began, a belief that the West Memphis Three were wrongly convicted grew, and a website dedicated to freeing them was established. Celebrities even got behind the cause, calling Mm -hmm. out the major injustice that had been carried out on these boys who just didn't fit in. Um, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, Johnny Depp, and Natalie Maines of Dixie Chicks got behind the cause. They raised money. They did benefit concerts to, like, raise money for these kids, um 
defense funds and like uh, appeal cases yeah. and all of this. In 2000, Paradise Lost 2, Revelations, was released, and it showed the people behind the movement, working to free the three and raising money for the cause. It also raised questions about the who the real killer or killers might be. Yeah. Um, can you imagine if you did something like that and then you watch a huge trial play out? Right. I mean... Yes. Oh. So I remember watching this doc, and I've seen all, there's three parts to this Mm -hmm. documentary. I've seen all three parts. But I just remember watching the first one, and just like, I had never heard of the case before. Yeah. I just, it was just on TV, and Mm -hmm. I just watched it, and was like, how does this happen? Yeah. How can this happen? Like, it blew my mind. Because there's no evidence There's no evidence that these kids were ever at the crime scene, that they had anything to do with it. And they're not only are they convicted, one of them is sentenced to death. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Because then you think, you wonder how many people are in this situation that don't have documentaries made about them. Yeah. And you wonder, like... How easily could this happen to me? Yeah. So there was like a, when the first one came out, there was a little bit of criticism about how um, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin acted at their, at their trial. They were pretty flippant and none of them, Mm -hmm. neither of them seemed to take it very seriously. And then the second one, they interview them about this and they ask them, you know, when you see your behavior on this, like, what are your thoughts on it? And Damien specifically, and I wish I'd written this down, but I didn't, but he says something to the effect of, Honestly, like, I was just a teenager who knew I didn't do this and thought, if you didn't do it, you can't be found guilty. So I didn't take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, if you didn't, if you didn't commit a crime, your automatic thought is, well, they're never going to be able to convict me of something I didn't do. Mm -hmm. But it fucking happened. Yeah. Oh. A major twist came in 2007 when DNA found at the crime scene was retested and was found to not be a match to any of the three convicted boys. Yes. So there was also hair found in a knot in one of the ties of the victims, and it was tested in 2007 and was found to be a possible match to Terry Hobbs. Terry Hobbs is the stepfather of Stevie Branch. So here's where I need to do like a little bit of clarification. So it is a possible match to Terry Hobbs. They cannot rule him out, but it is also a possible match to basically like 1.5% of the population. Okay. So that still narrows it down a shit ton. Yes, it does. Um, So for it to possibly be a match of one of the parents of one of the kids Mm -hmm. that's some pretty damning evidence yeah i'd say so this new evidence though failed to convince judge burnett that a new trial was justified so the three so he said nope not not enough and he said no new no new trial so the three appealed his decision to the arkansas supreme court oh my god on november 4th 2010 so like they're sitting there waiting Three years go by. The Arkansas Supreme Court finally orders a lower judge to consider whether newly analyzed DNA evidence might exonerate the three. Then they got a little bit of a break. 
In, in early December 2010, the original judge, Burnett, was elected to the Arkansas State Senate. So he was replaced on the case mm-hmm. by Judge David Laser. He presided over the evidentiary meeting or evidentiary hearings mandated by this successful appeal. So new judge in place, the not the original judge anymore. So prosecutors are scrambling now. They're like, yeah. we have to find a way to get out of having to retry this. Mm-hmm. So a plea deal is put on the table. Under uh, the deal. They have to admit it. <laughs> so under the deal, um, Judge David Laser would vacate the previous convictions, including the capital murder convictions for both Eccles and Baldwin, and ordered a new trial. Each man then had to enter an Alford plea to lesser charges of first and second degree murder while verbally stating their innocence. The Alford plea is a legal mechanism that allows defendants to plead guilty while still asserting their actual innocence. What? In cases where defendants concede that prosecutors may have sufficient evidence to secure a conviction. So basically it says, I'm pleading, I am pleading um, an Alford plea. Basically, I say that I am innocent, but I also say that I believe the prosecution may have enough evidence to convict me. And so it's terrible. Uh, Yeah. It is terrible. You still are pleading guilty. Yeah. So under this plea deal, if they take this plea, they would be sentenced to time served. So they would serve the time they would be out just based on the time that they've served. Jason Baldwin was reluctant to take the deal, stating that he wasn't willing to concede anything to the prosecutors. He truly believed that he would one day walk out of the gates fully exonerated. And under this, they're not exonerated. They still have... Yeah. They still have... um, They're guilty of murder on their records. And I'm wondering... Does that does that deal mean that maybe they can't go back and sue the yes, state? Yes, oh, 100%. Okay. Yes, that okay. is part of the deal. They cannot go back and sue there the state is. for wrongful there conviction. Yes. I'd hate to try to guess at how I would be in that situation. I know. I can understand, like, you want to get out of prison as quickly yeah. as possible. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to give them anything yeah so he and that's exactly how jason baldwin was he was like i didn't do this i've maintained from the day i was arrested that i didn't do this i know that i can get out of here and i know that i can be exonerated and i am willing yeah to wait however long that takes yeah ultimately though jason took the deal (laughs) Uh, this is the part that i told you about where i can't say it without crying okay not for himself, but for Damien, knowing that it may be the only chance they had to save his life. Oh. Because he didn't have the time to wait to continue to fight this. He was on death row, and they could have decided at any time to schedule his... Yeah. I mean, it's fucking terrible. And for somebody to have to make that decision when you believe and you know that you could be fully exonerated to make that decision to save somebody else's life. (laughs) (laughs) We're both crying. I know. (laughs) We're laughing. I mean, what a place to be put. Yeah. 
And how old was he at this point? Like, 20s? 30, 33. And yeah, you've been... That's your best friend. Mm-hmm. You've been through hell yeah. together. Yeah. Oh, so he, so they take the deal. I get why you always cry. Yes. <laughs> Upon entering their Alfred please, Laser sentenced them to time served, a total of 18 years and 78 days, and on August 19th, 2011, they walked free. Wow. So they left jail but they were never they're not exonerated they are still convicted convicted murderers and Uh because the state has convicted murderers in this case they will not continue to look into Uh, who the real killers might be so let's talk about that oh my god the other possible suspects okay so the first one are two two guys, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. On May 17th, two West... So, May 17th, 1993. Okay. Two West Memphis teenagers, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, were arrested in Oceanside, California. They had abruptly left West Memphis four days after the bodies were discovered. Morgan and Holland both took polygraph exams administered by California police. Examiners reported that both men's charts indicated deception when they denied involvement in the murders. During subsequent questioning, Morgan claimed a long history of drug and alcohol use, along with blackouts and memory lapses. He claimed that he might have killed the victims. Okay. (laughs) Saying he wasn't sure, he couldn't account for all of his time. And he believed he could possibly be involved. California police sent blood and urine samples from Morgan and Holland to the West Memphis PD. But there's no indication that West Memphis PD investigated Morgan or Holland Mm -hmm. as suspects following their arrests in California. They had their guys. Yeah. The defense actually attempted to call Morgan to testify at Damien and Jason's trial. But they were thwarted when Morgan's attorney announced in a hearing before Judge Burnett from which the press was excluded, that his client, if forced to testify, would invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Of course, that's exactly what attorneys for Eccles and Baldwin wanted to have happen. Prosecutors argued strenuously, though, that Morgan's taking the Fifth, which Morgan's attorney insisted related to pending federal drug charges against his client that might be vaguely related to the murders, which, what the fuck does that mean? Um, would mislead the jury who would quite naturally conclude that Morgan was hiding his involvement in the actual murders of the three young boys. Well, I think that's the natural assumption when someone pleads the fifth. Mm-hmm. Burnett ruled that he would not force Morgan to testify and said that anyone who mentioned his ruling to the press, quote, or anyone else will be held in contempt. And I mean it. This is what the judge says. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first possible other suspect. Next, Mr. Bojangles. Is this a joke? (laughs) No, this is real. So at 8.40 p.m. on May 5th, so this is the night that the kids are missing. This is, they, there's an active search going on for the kids at this time. West Memphis Police Department received a call that a bleeding black man had entered the Bojangles restaurant located near where the three bodies were eventually discovered mm-hmm. about 30 minutes earlier. So a guy comes in about 810, bloody, muddy mess. Mm-hmm. 
um, and goes in, he goes into the women's restroom. Hmm. So they call the police. Officer Regina Meek arrives on the scene at 8.50 and questions Marty King, the restaurant's manager, through the drive-through window. Oh, come on. She was getting a Bowberry biscuit. That's all she wanted. Are you kidding me? Serious. Through the drive-through window. King reported that the man with muddy feet wearing a white cap and black pants and blue shirt had blood on his face and arm and appeared mentally disoriented, but had left the restaurant a few minutes before the officer arrived. When employees entered the women's restroom, they discovered blood smeared on the wall. The officer leaves the premises about 9 a.m. without ever setting foot inside the restaurant. So she drives, cruises up to the window. Hey, did somebody call for the police? Oh, there was a bloody man here? Cool. I'm not going to come in. I feel like... See you later. Okay. In your research, <laughs> did you determine... Did she get food? I, I did I not feel, determine. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so important, but to me, it just is like, she's not there to do a job. So she's in, there for a in, snack. In one of the documentaries, she does... Like, there is a little clip of her. She testifies at trial, and there's a little clip of her, and she said, this isn't my normal area of town. This isn't where I usually work. What does that mean? That have doesn't anything? fucking mean anything. Do you know how to walk into yeah. a restaurant? Yeah. Do they have restaurants in right. your normal area of town? So the next day, Detective Ridge and Sergeant Allen returned to the Bojangles to collect blood scrapings from the restroom wall. Unfortunately, the scrapings were never sent to a crime lab to be analyzed and were later reported lost. No additional interviews were ever concluded with Bojangles employees about the incident. Oh my God. Um... No other interviews were ever conducted. I believe I said concluded, but... Oh. <laughs> Went way over my head. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, so that's another possible, okay. you know, weird, weird happening. I wonder how much blood he was covered in. Yeah, I don't know. Enough that it was smeared on the wall of the bathroom. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, and mentally disoriented. Yeah. And... Assuming it's just one guy, um, I feel like one adult could easily order around and over Or uh, that's just it. You children. got three eight-year-old boys. Yeah. Like, you, they just have to be scared of you for you to yeah, subdue them. They're absolutely. not going to do a whole lot, I feel like. No, and you can mentally overpower them. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Okay, so then this is the last, you know, kind of mm -hmm. heavily talked about suspect. Mentioned it before. Terry Hobbs. So Stevie Branch's stepdad and his friend David Jacoby. So Terry's hair, as we talked about, was found in a knot in one of the ties. David, or a hair that could possibly, you know, allegedly be his. Mm -hmm. You can't rule him out, though you can rule out 98.5% of the population. Mm -hmm. David Jacoby's hair was found on a tree stump just to the side of the ditch. So this is it. This is Terry's friend. And Terry, uh -huh. this guy is Terry's uh, alibi that night. He says he's hanging out with this guy. Okay. So in 2013, what seems likely to be close to the true story of the West Memphis murders finally emerges in two separate affidavits signed by Billy Wayne Stewart and Benny Guy. The level of detail and overall plausibility of the stories told in the affidavit makes it seem highly credible, even if they do come from a, 
from an admitted drug dealer and a convicted felon. So okay. these guys are not, you know. Yeah. They're, one was a, one was a selling weed and the other was a convicted felon. Okay. So they say, and they both say these separately in two separate affidavits. This is just kind of combined into one story. Okay. On May 5th, 1993, the day the boys go full missing. Moon. Yeah. Full moon. That's right. Noted. Um, Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, and two teenagers from a local trailer park, L.G. Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas, show up at Stewart's West Memphis home looking to buy some pot, which Stewart provided. While Stewart is selling the pot to the boys, he noticed that Hobbs and Jacoby were kissing in a pickup truck across the street. Hmm. According to Stewart, it was pretty well known around town that Hobbs was bisexual. Okay. Um, what happened after Stewart sold the pot on May 5th was told to Stewart by Buddy Lucas in April of 1995. Getting back in the pickup, Hobbs, Jacoby, and the two boys drove around town. And at that point, um, oh, smoke, they smoked pot, drank whiskey, and then they headed down a dirt road by the Blue Beacon Car Wash, which the Blue Beacon Car Wash is right by the Robin Hood Hills area. Okay, gotcha. At that point, the four got out of the truck and were involved in some kind of homosexual tryst. It was during this likely sexual activity that Chris Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch appeared on their bikes at the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, no. Stewart says Lucas told him that Terry Hobbs screamed, get them little fuckers. Terry Hobbs then announced that the boys had to be killed because of what they'd seen. And Hobbs and Jacoby proceeded to do just that. The boys' clothes and bodies were gathered and dragged into the water, and their bikes were thrown into the bayou. Shockingly, according to Stewart, when he tried to call the West Memphis police investigator in 1995 to tell him this story that had just been told, no one ever called him back. Wait, so, okay, I'm sorry if I'm not, I'm not keeping up here. Yeah. So... How did he find out about this story? They just told him? One of, the, one of the teenagers that was there told him. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And so, it like, two years later, and this kid, like, has been living with this, and so he finally, you know, kind of spills the beans to this guy, Stuart. Uh-huh. And so he's like, so it's been two years since the kids have been yeah. killed. It's been a year since the guys have been convicted. And so Stuart's like, well, this isn't fucking right. And so he goes to call the police to tell them what he's just been told. Mm-hmm. Leaves them multiple messages. Nobody ever calls him back. Because they've already got their guys. Like, why? Oh, my god! Why would they bother? So, so that, that scenario is likely to believe, be, is widely believed to be the most likely scenario. But why mutilate the kids, though? Uh, in the affidavit, there's a that you can go online. You can read this whole affidavit. Yeah, they go into more detail about how uh, Chris Byers is the one that fought back, and so okay. he he's the one that fought back, and so yeah. he's the one that got it the worst, and so okay. the mutilation happened and whatever else. Oh my gosh. Um. Yeah. So it's pretty fucking terrible. Oh. Um, if you've not seen them, I urge you to check out the Paradise Lost documentaries on HBO. There are so three good. of them. They follow the case from the trial all the way to the entering of the Alford pleas, and they are amazing. They're, you can watch them. If you have HBO, they're on the on-demand, like, on there, so you can watch them right now. Thanks for rubbing it in that I do don't it. have HBO. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so oh that's the gosh. West Memphis Three. It's pretty fucking terrible. I mean, the 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 great thing... If there is a great thing about it is that the guys are out, they're not, they're, ha- they're living their lives now, mm-hmm. but 
they lost 18 years of their lives for being kids that didn't fit in. And see, to me, it's like you lose so much more than just those 18 years. Because oh, absolutely. What does that do to your mindset that yeah. so many of those important years of your life absolutely are spent with the whole world thinking that you did? Mm-hmm. And even like, still now, there are people that believe that the right people... This is kind of interesting. There, so of the three boys, the parents, two sets of parents, well, two parents, one, um, Christopher Byers, his father mm-hmm. was very outspoken, John Mark Byers. He believed very much that the three were the right people, that they did it, you know, and he's completely changed his opinion now. He, yeah. he does not believe that they did it. Same thing with, um, Stevie Branch's mom. She okay. completely believed that they did it, and she's she has actually divorced Terry Hobbs. I was going to yeah. ask. Does she's she no think- longer. She definitely believes he had something to do with oh. it. They're no longer married. She believes that these boys were wrongly convicted. She helped fight to to get them, you know, a new trial. Yeah. But Michael Moore, his parents believe that these are the right that yeah that, that Damian right and guys. Jason and Jesse did it even at the sentencing so this i read this last night and this was really hard for me to read i read the um the court record of them entering their offer pleas i Mm -hmm. read like the transcript of it yeah and this is something i didn't know but while it's happening there are two people a male and a female that had to be removed from the courtroom because they're screaming out to the judge don't release them they're murderers and i don't know who those two people are they could be anybody but so there are people who believe that these are that they are that those were the killers that they have been you know erroneously released from prison Mm -hmm. i just don't know how you get there because i don't see any evidence of it i totally understand if you were the parents of one of those little boys or maybe related you want to believe well yeah because you you want to believe they've had the right person and you want to believe that these kids didn't have their lives ruined you don't want to believe that for the last 18 years you've spent hating the wrong person Mm -hmm. and that those people have also had their lives ruined yeah and that somehow this horrible tragedy turned into an even bigger bigger exactly exactly so i can understand their point of view i absolutely can i just yeah just looking at the facts looking at the facts i can't get to a conviction for these guys no at all oh my god yeah that oh that is horrible but since being released um Damien, he actually got married in prison to um, someone that was very involved. And she actually, it's a woman, her name's Lori. She um, watched the first documentary, became just overwhelmingly drawn to Damien, believed that she should write him letters and started writing. They started doing this correspondence and they ended up getting married while he was in prison, while he was on death row. Now that he's released, they live together. Like they have a pretty regular life. He does a lot of art installations and uh-huh. stuff like that. They live, um, they were living in Salem, um, Massachusetts. And now I think they're living in New York city, but got the hell out of, <laughs> yeah, got the hell out of West Memphis. Um, Jason Baldwin, he, 
wants to become an advocate for um, people who have been wrongly convicted or people looking that need to be exonerated. And so he's taking classes to hopefully eventually one day become a lawyer and be able to be even more involved in that. And then Jesse Miss Kelly, he is he's the only one that stayed in West Memphis. He's still there Mm -hmm. and he lives kind of kind of under the radar he doesn't do the other guys have social media accounts and you, know, yeah. you can follow him um damien eccles has actually re- released a couple books he did a book signing here in kansas city Whoa. um down at the unity temple uh-huh. and so he, he had his book came out he signed it and then he did like a little um gave a little talk on it did i wasn't go? i didn't go i wasn't able to go because i was in a wedding at the time and i had a bridesmaid dress fitting that night but my amazing husband uh-huh. went for me and oh, got me a signed copy of the sick. book. <laughs> so I do have a signed copy of the book, and it's amazing. Uh-huh. And he got to listen to the talk. It was both Damien and Lori were there. That's true um, love right there. I, my husband, he's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so they're doing stuff with their lives, and, you know, yeah. they're not... Um, there is still a movement to to get them exonerated, and yeah. there's a petition. There's been multiple petitions asking the governor um, to pardon them. Yeah, but until this, so far, it hasn't happened. So wow, because that's basically the only way to exonerate them is to pardon them. Okay, or prove that somebody else committed the murders and so they're not really they're not really interested in doing prosecutors have said that they would look if some kind of new evidence came forward they would consider it but they're not actively searching for anything of course of course yeah yeah how could you not yeah you have to say that oh it is so dangerous in any line of work but especially in police work and legal work to not be willing to look beyond what you've assumed absolutely or to not be willing to admit maybe i made a mistake exactly which that would be really hard to do to admit oh shit maybe i put these kids away Mm -hmm. because of blind spots yeah tunnel vision yeah yeah i don't know how you'd live with yourself it's a good thing my job's not that important. I right? No oh, shit. <laughs> not be responsible for that. No, no, that'd be horrible. Absolutely not. That burden. Yeah. Oh my god. This is dark. Sorry. This was dark. Sorry, you know I what? got real dark. <laughs> Can we bring it up a notch here? <laughs> I, I'd like to tell everyone why I'm upset with you. Right oh now. shit. So <laughs> last week. <laughs> I just think this is so funny that, like, oh, okay, no, so two weeks ago, Norman and I found this restaurant that we were really excited about, (laughs) and let me tell you, they've got great margaritas, bargain prices, yeah, half-price appetizers, delicious nachos, oh, the nachos were amazing, 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 so last week after the podcast, I was like, Brandy, you want to go to this place? Half price, appetizers, great margaritas. She's like, sure, sounds great. We get there. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to shit all over it. (laughs) You were like, this this place sounds familiar. And, you know, not in a good way. And I'm I'm thinking, like, tax stuff, which, you know, okay. They're they're not up on their taxes. That's fine. No, the, the guy who owned the place... 
And you said this after we put in our order. Was, like, he's been charged with two counts of rape. Oh. And of course, Norman's like reading up all these articles like, oh, it says he's no longer affiliated with the business. Bullshit. It's ruined for me. Even though it combines my favorite things, margaritas, Cheese, <laughs> melted cheese, like all of it together, but then, oh god, terrible. What? Ruined. I'm sorry for ruining your, your nacho happiness. <laughs> tell you what, lately a lot of dudes in Hollywood have been ruined for me. No shit. Now, now my cheap nachos. nachos. I had to go and ruin your nachos. I'm very sorry for doing that to you. Uh, well, you know, I think the rapist is the one who needs to apologize. <laughs> Alleged rapist. Alleged rapist. That's right. Alleged rapist. I don't need to blame no. you. Oh, God. Yeah, it's all my fault, not the alleged rapist. Join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. You know what people could do that would really help us out, Brandy? What's that? They could write us a review on iTunes if they enjoyed the podcast. Yeah, if you fucking hated it, please don't leave us a review. <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> yes, tell no one that you listen to it. We apologize sincerely from the bottom of our hearts if you found us annoying and um, unknowledgeable. Unknowledgeable? Uh-oh. <laughs> Fuck, is that a word? How about just dumb? Dumb. If you found us dumb, please, <laughs> please do not leave a review. If you thought that we were slightly humorous and my laugh wasn't super annoying, please like us, subscribe, leave us a review. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. I got my info from the book The Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek by Howard Markle, plus an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. And I pulled from FamousTrials.com and the Paradise Lost documentary trilogy. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff and watch those documentaries. Toodles. <laughs> <laughs>